Chapter Seven of Wild Animals I Have Known by Ernest Thompson Seaton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Chapter Seven: Wooly, the Story of a Yeller Dog. Wooly was a little yeller dog. A yeller dog, be it understood, is not necessarily the same as a yellow dog. He is not simply a canine whose capillary covering is highly charged with yellow pigment. He is the mongrelist mixture of all mongrels, the least common multiple of all dogs, the breedless union of all breeds, and though of no breed at all, he is yet of older, better breed than any of his aristocratic relations, for he is nature's attempt to restore the ancestral jackal, the parent stock of all dogs. Indeed, the scientific name of the jackal, Canis aurus, simply means yellow dog, and not a few of that animal's characteristics are seen in his domesticated representative. For the plebeian cur is shrewd, active, and hardy, and far better equipped for the real struggle of life than any of his thoroughbred kinsmen. If we were to abandon a yellow dog, a greyhound, and a bulldog on a desert island, which of them after six months would be alive and well? Unquestionably, it would be the despised yellow cur. He has not the speed of the greyhound, but neither does he bear the seeds of lung and skin diseases. He has not the strength or reckless courage of the bulldog, but he has something a thousand times better. He has common sense. Health and wit are no mean equipment for the life struggle, and when the dog world is not managed by man, they have never yet failed to bring out the yellow mongrel as the sole and triumphant survivor. Once in a while the reversion to the jackal type is more complete, and the yellow dog has pricked and pointed ears. Beware of him, then. He is cunning and plucky and can bite like a wolf. There is a strange wild streak in his nature, too, that under cruelty or long adversity may develop into deadliest treachery, in spite of the better traits that are the foundation of man's love for the dog. Away up in the Chauvois, little Wooly was born. He and one other of the litter were kept, his brother because he resembled the best dog in the vicinity, and himself because he was a little yellow beauty. His early life was that of a sheep-dog, in company with an experienced collie who trained him, and an old shepherd who was scarcely inferior to them in intelligence. By the time he was two years old, Wooly was full-grown and had taken a thorough course in sheep. He knew them from ram-horn to lamb-hoof, and old Robin, his master, at length had such confidence in his sagacity that he would frequently stay at the tavern all night while Wooly guarded the woolly idiots in the hills. His education had been wisely bestowed, and in most ways he was a very bright little dog with a future before him yet he never learned to despise that adulpated robin the old shepherd with all his faults his continual striving after his ideal state intoxication and his mind shriveling life in general was rarely brutal to woolly and woolly repaid him with an exaggerated worship that the greatest and wisest in the land would have aspired to in vain woolly could not have imagined any greater being than robin and yet for the sum of five shillings a week all robin's vital energy and mental force were pledged to the service of a not very great cattle and sheep dealer the real proprietor of woolly's charge and when this man really less great than the neighbouring laird ordered robin to drive his flock by stages to the yorkshire moors and markets of all the three hundred seventy six mentalities concerned if woolly's was the most interested and interesting the journey through northumberland was uneventful at the river Tyne the sheep were driven on to the ferry and landed safely in smoky south shields. The great factory chimneys were just starting up for the day and belching out fog banks and thunder rollers of opaque leaden smoke that darkened the air and hung low like a storm cloud over the streets. The sheep thought that they recognized the fuming dun of an unusually heavy chevois storm. They became alarmed and in spite of their keepers stampeded through town in 374 different directions. Robin was vexed to the inmost recesses of his tiny soul. He stared stupidly after the sheep for half a minute, then gave the order, Wooly, fetch them in. 
After this mental effort he sat down, lit his pipe, and taking out his knitting began to work on a half-finished sock. To Wooly, the voice of Robin was the voice of God. Away he ran in 374 different directions, and headed off and rounded up the 374 different wanderers, and brought them back to the ferry house before Robin, who was stolidly watching the process, had towed off his sock. Finally Wooly, not Robin, gave the sign that all were in. The old shepherd proceeded to count them. 370, 371, 372, 373. Wooly, he said reproachfully, they're not all here. There's another and Wooly, stung with shame, bounded off to scour the whole city for the missing one. He was not long gone when the small boy pointed out to Robin that the sheep were all there, the whole 374. Now Robin was in a quandary. His order was to hasten on to Yorkshire, and yet he knew that Wooly's pride would prevent his coming back without another sheep, even if he had to steal it. Such things had happened before, and resulted in embarrassing complications. What should he do? There was five shillings a week at stake. Wooly was a good dog. It was a pity to lose him, but then his orders from the master, and again, if Wooly stole an extra sheep to make up the number, then what? In a foreign land, too. He decided to abandon Wooly and push on alone with the sheep. And how he fared, no one knows or cares. Meanwhile, Wooly careened through miles of streets, hunting in vain for his lost sheep. All day he searched, and at night, famished and worn out, he sneaked shamefacedly back to the ferry, only to find that master and sheep had gone. His sorrow was pitiful to see. He ran about whimpering, then took the ferry-boat across to the other side, and searched everywhere for Robin. He returned to South Shields and searched there, and spent the rest of the night seeking for his wretched idol. The next day he continued his search. He crossed and recrossed the river many times. He watched and smelt everyone that came over, and with significant shrewdness he sought unceasingly in the neighboring taverns for his master. The next day he set to work systematically to smell every one that might cross the ferry. The ferry makes fifty trips a day, with an average of one hundred persons per trip, yet never once did Wooly fail to be on the gangplank and smell every pair of legs that crossed. Five thousand pairs, ten thousand legs that day did Wooly examine after his own fashion. And the next day, and the next, and all the week he kept his post, and seemed indifferent to feeding himself. Soon starvation and worry began to tell on him. He grew thin and ill-tempered. No one could touch him, and any attempts to interfere with his daily occupation of leg-smelling roused him to desperation. Day after day, week after week, Wooly watched and waited for his master, who never came. The ferrymen learned to respect Wooly's fidelity. At first he scorned their proffered food and shelter, and lived, no one knew how, but starved to it at last, he accepted the gifts and learned to tolerate the givers. Although embittered against the world, his heart was true to his worthless master. Fourteen months afterward I made his acquaintance. He was still on rigid duty at his post. He had regained his good looks. His bright, keen face set off by his white, rough, and pricked ears made a dog to catch the eye anywhere. But he gave me no second glance, once he found my legs were not those he sought, and in spite of my friendly overtures during the ten months following that he continued his watch, I got no further into his confidence than any other stranger. For two whole years did this devoted creature attend that ferry. There was only one thing to prevent him going home to the hills, not the distance nor the chance of getting lost, but the conviction that Robin, the godlike Robin, wished him to stay by the ferry, and he stayed. But he crossed the water as often as he felt it would serve his purpose. The fare for a dog was one penny, and it was calculated that Wooly owed the company hundreds of pounds before he gave up his quest. He never failed to sense every pair of nethers that crossed the gangplank. Six million legs by computation had been pronounced upon by this expert, but all to no purpose. His unswerving fidelity never faltered, though his temper was obviously souring under the long strain. 
We had never heard what became of Robin, but one day a sturdy drover strode down the ferry slip, and Wooly mechanically essaying the new personality suddenly started. His mane bristled, he trembled. A low growl escaped him, and he fixed his every sense on the drover. One of the ferry hands, not understanding, called to the stranger, Hoot, mon, ye mon a hoot de dog. Way's hurtin' him, ye fool. He is mere like to hurt me. But further explanation was not necessary. Wooly's manner had wholly changed. He fawned on the drover, and his tail was wagging violently for the first time in years. A few words made it all clear. Dorley, the drover, had known Robin very well, and the mittens and comforter he wore were of Robin's own make, and had once been part of his wardrobe. Wooly recognized the traces of his master, and despairing of any nearer approach to his lost idol, he abandoned his post at the ferry, and plainly announced his intention of sticking to the owner of the mittens, and Dorley was well pleased to take Wooly along to his home among the hills of the Derbyshire, where he became once more a sheep-dog in charge of a flock. Monsadell is one of the best-known valleys in Derbyshire. The pig and whistle is its single but celebrated inn, and Joe Greatorex, the landlord, is a shrewd and sturdy Yorkshireman. Nature meant him for a frontiersman, but circumstances made him an innkeeper, and his inborn taste made him a—well, never mind, there was a great deal of poaching done in that country. Wooly's new home was on the upland east of the valley above Joe's Inn, and that fact was not without weight in bringing me to Monsaldale. His master, Dorley, farmed in a small way on the lowland, and on the moors had a large number of sheep. These Wooly guarded with his old-time sagacity, watching them while they fed and bringing them to the fold at night. He was reserved and preoccupied for a dog, and rather too ready to show his teeth to strangers, but he was so unremitting in his attention to his flock that Dorley did not lose a lamb that year, although the neighboring farmers paid the usual tribute to eagles and to foxes. The dales are poor fox-hunting country at best. The rocky ridges, high stone walls, and precipices are too numerous to please the riders, and the final retreats in the rocks are so plentiful that it was a marvel the foxes did not overrun Monsaldale. But they didn't there had been but little reason for complaint until the year eighteen eighty one when a sly old fox quartered himself on the fat parish like a mouse inside a cheese and laughed equally at the hounds of the huntsmen and the lurchers of the farmers he was several times run by the peak hounds and escaped by making for the devil's hole once in this gorge where the cracks in the rocks extend unknown distances he was safe the country folk began to see something more than chance in the fact that he always escaped at the devil's hole and when one of the hounds who nearly caught this devil's fox soon after went mad it removed all doubt as to the spiritual paternity of said fox he continued his career of rapine making audacious raids and hairbreadth escapes and finally began as do many old foxes to kill from a mania for slaughter thus it was that digby lost ten lambs in one night carroll lost seven the next night Later, the vicarage, Duck Pond, was wholly devastated, and scarcely a night passed, but someone in the region had to report the carnage of poultry, lambs, or sheep, and finally even calves. Of course, all the slaughter was attributed to this one fox of the Devil's Hole. It was known only that he was a very large fox, at least one that made a very large track. He never was clearly seen, even by the huntsmen, and it was noticed that Thunder and Bell, the staunchest hounds in the pack, had refused to tongue or even follow the trail when he was hunted. His reputation for madness sufficed to make the master of the peak hounds avoid the neighborhood. The farmers in Monsaldell, led by Joe, agreed among themselves that if it would only come out on a snow, they would assemble and beat the whole country, and in defiance of all the rules of the hunt, get rid of the daft fox in any way they could. But the snow did not come, and the red-haired gentleman lived his life. Notwithstanding his madness, he did not lack method. He never came two successive nights to the same farm. He never ate where he killed, and he never left a track that betrayed his retreat he usually finished up its night's trail on the turf or on a public highway once i saw him 
I was walking to Monsaldale from Bakewell late one night, during a heavy storm, and as I turned the corner of Stead's sheepfold there was a vivid flash of lightning. By its light there was fixed on my retina a picture that made me start. Sitting on his haunches by the roadside, twenty yards away, was a very large fox gazing at me with malignant eyes, and licking his muzzle in a suggestive manner. All this I saw, but no more, and might have forgotten it, or thought myself mistaken. But the very next morning in that very fold were found the bodies of twenty-three lambs and sheep, and the unmistakable signs that brought home the crime to the well-known marauder. There was only one man who escaped, and that was Dorley. This was the more remarkable, because he lived in the center of the region reigned and within one mile of the Devil's Hole. Faithfully, Wooly proved himself worth all the dogs in the neighborhood. Night after night he brought in the sheep, and never one was missing. The mad fox might prowl about the Dorley homestead if he wished, but Wooly, shrewd, brave, active Wooly, was more than a match for him, and not only saved his master's flock, but himself escaped with a whole skin. Everyone entertained a profound respect for him, and he might have been a popular pet but for his temper, which never genial, became more and more crabbed. He seemed to like Dorley and Holda, Dorley's eldest daughter, a shrewd, handsome young woman, who, in the capacity of general manager of the house, was Wooly's special guardian. The other members of Dorley's family Wooly learned to tolerate, but the rest of the world, men and dogs, he seemed to hate. His uncanny disposition was well shown in the last meeting I had with him. I was walking on a pathway across the moor behind Dorley's house. Wooly was lying on the doorstep. As I drew near, he arose, and without appearing to see me, trotted toward my pathway and placed himself across it, about ten yards ahead of me. There he stood silently and intently, regarding the distant moor, his slightly bristling mane the only sign that he had not been suddenly turned to stone. He did not stir as I came up, and not wishing to quarrel, I stepped round past his nose and walked on. Wooly at once left his position, and in the same eerie silence trotted on some twenty feet, and again stood across the pathway. Once more I came up, and stepping into the grass, brushed past his nose. Instantly, but without a sound, he seized my left heel. I kicked out with the other foot, but he escaped. Not having a stick, I flung a large stone at him. He leaped forward, and the stone struck him in the ham, bowling him over into a ditch. He gasped out a savage growl as he fell, but scrambled out of the ditch and limped away in silence. Yet sullen and ferocious as Wooly was to the world, he was always gentle with Dorley's sheep. Many were the tales of rescues told of him. Many a poor lamb that had fallen into a pond or hole would have perished but for his timely and sagacious aid. Many a far weltered ewe did he turn right side up, while his keen eye discerned and his fierce courage baffled every eagle that had appeared on the moor in this time. The Monsaldale farmers were still paying their nightly tribute to the mad fox when the snow came in late December. Poor widow Cott lost her entire flock of twenty sheep, and the fiery cross went forth early in the morning. With guns unconcealed, the burly farmers set out to follow to the finish the tell-tale tracks in the snow, those of a very large fox, undoubtedly the multo murderous villain. For a while the trail was clear enough, then it came to the river, and the habitual cunning of the animal was shown. He reached the water at a long angle, pointing downstream, and jumped into the shallow, unfrozen current. But at the other side there was no track leading out, and it was only after long searching that, a quarter of a mile higher up the stream, they found where he came out. The track then ran to the top of Henley's high stone wall, where there was no snow left to tell tales. But the patient hunters persevered. When it crossed the smooth snow from the wall to the high road, there was a difference of opinion. Some claimed that the track went up, others down the road. But Joe settled it, and after a long search they found where apparently the same trail, though some said a larger one, had left the road to enter a sheepfold, and leaving this without harming the occupants, the track-maker had stepped in the footmarks of a countryman, thereby getting to the moor road along which he had trotted straight to Dorley's farm. 
that day the sheep were kept in on account of the snow and woolly without his usual occupation was lying on some planks in the sun as the hunters drew near the house he growled savagely and sneaked around to where the sheep were joe gridorex walked up to where woolly had crossed the fresh snow gave a glance looked dumbfounded then pointing to the retreating sheepdog he said with emphasis lads we're off the track of the fox but there's the killer of the widow's ewes some agreed with joe others recalled the doubt in the trail and were for going back to make a fresh follow at this juncture dorley himself came out of the house tom said joe that dog of thine has killed twenty winter gilt sheep last night and i for one don't believe as it's his first killing why mon thou art crazy said tom i'd never had a better sheep dog he fair loves the sheep ay we seen some of that in last night's work replied joe in vain the company related the history of the morning tom swore that it was nothing but a jealous conspiracy to rob him of woolly woolly sleeps in the kitchen every night never is oot until he's let to bide with the ewes why mon he's with our sheep the year round and never a hoof have a lost tom became much excited over this abominable attempt against woolly's reputation in life joe and his partisans got equally angry and it was a wise suggestion of holda's that quieted them father said she i'll sleep in the kitchen to-night if woolly has any way of getting oot i shall see it and if he's not oot and sheep's killed on the countryside we'll have proof it's not woolly that night holda stretched herself on the settee and woolly slept as usual underneath the table as night wore on the dog became restless he turned on his bed and once or twice got up stretched looked at holda and lay down again about two o'clock he seemed no longer able to resist some strange impulse he arose quietly looked toward the low window and then at the motionless girl holda lay still and breathed as though sleeping a woolly slowly came near and sniffed and breathed his doggy breath in her face she made no move he nudged her gently with his nose then with his sharp ears forward and his head on one side he studied her calm face still no sign he walked quietly to the window mounted the table without noise placed his nose under the sash bar and raised the light frame until he could put one paw underneath then changing he put his nose under the sash and raised it high enough to slip out easing down the frame finally on his rump and tail with an adroitness that told of long practice then he disappeared into the darkness from her couch holda watched in amazement after waiting for some time to make sure that he was gone she arose intending to call her father at once but on second thought she decided to await more conclusive proof she peered into the darkness but no sign of woolly was to be seen she put more wood on the fire and lay down again for over an hour she lay wide awake listening to the kitchen clock and starting at each trifling sound and wondering what the dog was doing could it be possible that he had really killed the widow's sheep then the recollection of his gentleness to their own sheep came and completed her perplexity another hour slowly tick-tocked she heard a slight sound at the window that made her heart jump the scratching sound was soon followed by the lifting of the sash and in a short time woolly was back in the kitchen with the window closed behind him by the flickering firelight holda could see a strange wild gleam in his eye and his jaws and snowy breast were dashed with fresh blood the dog ceased his slight panting as he scrutinized the girl then as she did not move he lay down and began to lick his paws and muzzle growling lowly once or twice as though at the remembrance of some recent occurrence holda had seen enough there could no longer be any doubt that joe was right and more a new thought flashed into her quick brain she realized that the weird fox of monsel was before her raising herself she looked straight at woolly and exclaimed woolly woolly so it's a true oh woolly you terrible brute her voice was fiercely reproachful it rang in the quiet kitchen and woolly recoiled as though shot he gave a desperate glance toward the closed window his eye gleamed and his mane bristled 
but he cowered under her gaze and groveled on the floor as though begging for mercy slowly he crawled nearer and nearer as if to lick her feet until quite close then with the fury of a tiger but without a sound he sprang for her throat the girl was taken unawares but she threw up her arm in time and woolly's long gleaming tusks sank into her flesh and grated on the bone help help father father she shrieked woolly was a lightweight and for a moment she flung him off but there could be no mistaking his purpose the game was up it was his life or hers now father father she screamed as the yellow fury striving to kill her bit and tore the unprotected hands that had so often fed him in vain she fought to hold him off he would soon have had her by the throat when in rushed dorley straight at him now in the same horrid silence sprang woolly and savagely tore him again and again before a deadly blow from the faggot hook disabled him dashing him gasping and writhing on the stone floor desperate and done for but game and defiant to the last another quick blow scattered his brains on the hearthstone where so long he had been a faithful and honored retainer and woolly bright fierce trusty treacherous woolly quivered a moment then straightened out and lay forever still End of chapter 7